if you have your Bibles, you can take them and go to Ephesians chapter 6. We started a series uh, last week, and if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, uh, I'm Jack, one of the pastors. Welcome, glad you're here, and uh, we're going to continue to worship and looking into God's Word, and then we're going to sing a few songs at the end, and we'll have communion time in the middle of that if you want to participate in that, so that's kind of where we're going. Uh, if you have your phone, you can also open up and go to our app and kind of click on sermon notes, and that'll take you through everything we're going to look at tonight and some of the scripture passages there, but in Ephesians chapter 6, this is Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing this letter to the church church in Ephesus, and really writing this to the whole church that, that we see today, and saying, look, there's a reality of a battle going on around you. How many of you have ever had uh, appliances blow up at your house? There's a battle going on, right? No, I'm just kidding. It, it may be that, it may not be, but it's this reality of we can understand, we can look at our world, we can look at your world, your life, your story, and you can see some things that are going on that are happening behind the scenes that are, are more than meets the eye, more than just the physical stuff you see. There's other things happening, and Paul writes about that, and he says, look, this is a reality of what's going on. It's not just the physical realm that you see. There's a spiritual realm, and there's a spiritual battle going on. He writes, this. This is the verse we challenge each other to memorize for this series. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Simple verse, but it'll clue you to Ephesians 6, which is this is one of the most predominant passages that the apostle writes about this. And so he says, put on the full armor of God so that you could take your stand against the devil's schemes, meaning the devil is scheming things. He's up to something. We kind of looked at that last week when we made that mosaic picture of what is the enemy up to in our world, right? And we all took a time and we said, hey, here's kind of what we see going on. The, uh, you can stand against the devil's schemes, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He goes on, and he talks about the spiritual armor, and that's actually what we're going to look at next week. Unpacking, what does that mean? What does this look like, and how do I make this a part of just, and what do I do with this? What is this armor that God's given me as one who has said yes to Jesus? Now, for those of you who have said yes to Jesus, who are following after him, then this is kind of Paul. Paul's command to us is to be alert and to be aware. We don't have to be afraid, but there is a reality of what's going on around us. There's a truth to this. It's not just kind of this mumbo-jumbo stuff or this force thing that's out here. Like, there's a reality, a spiritual, biblical reality to this. There's a war afoot. C.S. Lewis wrote this, there's no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch and every split second is claimed by God or counterclaimed by our enemy. And we wanted to take three weeks to kind of unpack some of the, the weirdness that is out there to kind of push that aside and say, look, that's not a biblical understanding of spiritual warfare or a biblical understanding of this spiritual battle that we find ourselves in. We really want to look and get a clear biblical picture of what does the Bible have to say about these spiritual battles. And so we wanted to recognize the reality of what we're in. That's what we looked at last week. We want to resist this temptation and the tactics and the schemes of the enemy. That's what I want to look at tonight. So just kind of in a quick review last week that, hey, there is a biblical baseline for this. It's not something that's just cartoonish. It's not something that, that's kind of too mystical to get your mind around, but it's not something we have to be afraid of as one who has said yes to Jesus, who's sealed with him, that we can understand the reality of what's going on. Satan uh, had temptation. Remember, this is a Matthew chapter 4. Jesus faced temptation in the desert. So Jesus acknowledges the enemy's presence and the devil's presence. So this isn't something that's just kind of this nebulous thing out here. There's a reality to it. 
There's a war afoot. The scriptures describe our enemy in so many different ways of saying he's the father of lies. He's the one who twists God's truth. He's a thief. He's a deceiver. He's the accuser of believers. He's one who blinds those from trying to even find Jesus. And he has some dominion, but he's ultimately doomed, already doomed. And so he doesn't have a lot of power. He's not omnipresent. He's not all-powerful like God is. But he has sway, and he's trying to gain sway, more in the culture, more into your life, more into my life. And we're told biblically, be alert, be aware. You don't have to be afraid. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in this world. And so last week we said this idea of recognize the reality of what's going on around us. Recognize the lies that the enemy tries to tell and replace it with God's truth, meaning Get to know your Bible. Get to know the truth that God has given us and preserved and protected for us that we could know, here's how you engage in life. Here's what God has to say about the world. Here's what God has to say about life. And so it's this idea of kind of recognizing the reality of the lies that are around us, replacing that with God's truth, also recognizing our own weaknesses. That's where the enemy loves to strike, is in our own weaknesses, where we're weak, where we struggle with temptation. We we even said this, the truth is you will struggle to overcome our temptation or defeat the demons that you continually flirt with. So that's why accountability matters. That's why it's, it's helpful to have healthy and holy boundaries. And so why accountability is a necessity for everybody and why community matters, that you have other people in your life who can be praying for you and standing with you against some of these schemes that the enemy loves to try to drag away and isolate. I don't know if I told the story of when I was in Colorado um, and uh, <clears throat> we were riding through the Rocky Mountain National Park and like all these elk came coming over in front of the the van and rode across, you know, kind of dove across the road in front of us, except for one small elk that ran up to the road. All the friends went across, and then that elk, for some reason, decided to go back to the left. And we were like, no, don't do it. Why? Because we saw wolves chasing this elk. And so what happens in this moment? Animal Kingdom, what happens? They play tag. And there's a loser, right? I don't feel like you all are tracking with me. Okay, so for those of you who've never been out in the wild, things happen, and they don't play tag, and there's, like, death involved in this. And so, like, this poor elk got isolated, and so much of what the scriptures teach about is, that's really one of the greatest tactics of our enemy, is to try to isolate people and to get them away from other Bible-believing people, people who are friends and people who are in your life and wishing the best and God's best for you. And so accountability is important. Keeping short accounts with God is important. Living with a humble heart to say, I don't have it all figured out is important to have. And so that's the idea of recognizing. So resisting That's what I want to look at tonight for us to kind of go on a journey of what that means. And so we recognize that we're in this battle. And God is not unaware. He's not inactive. He's not aloof. In fact, he's very aware and he's very active. I've been uh, spending this year reading through Psalms and Proverbs and kind of just diving into that more and more. I came across this this week. Proverbs 15.3 says this, The Lord is watching everywhere, keeping his eye on both the evil and the good. God's not distant. He's not aloof to this. And I know there's days we can wake up and see such, such evil in our world. And we get frustrated. And just being honest, God, why, why do you let that happen? Why, why, why does that unfold? 
And the reality is we're a, a broken humanity. And outside of Jesus setting everything right, we're living in that brokenness. And that has bad effects for bad people and good people at times. And I wish it was different. And one day it will be. But for the meantime, it's, it's up to us as agents of God to be up for agents of good, to do God's good in our world, and to be active with that, praying for that. And so to resist, James 4, uh, 7 says this, humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and he'll come close to you, is the next verse. This idea of resisting the devil, resisting in definition of it, is simply this. The refusal to accept and comply with something, to attempt to prevent some action or argument from happening, or the ability not to be affected by something, especially adversely. The enemy will do all he can do to distract you and to detour you away from Jesus and walking life with him. He will do everything he can to disrupt your relationship with Jesus. And what's your job? What's my job? To resist. To say, look, I'm not going to comply with that. I'm not going to let that happen. I'm not going to let that affect me. And so I want to look specifically at three different uh, things that I think we can resist against. As we look at this idea of how do you resist against the tactics and the schemes and the plans that the enemy may try to play out in your life, my life, and in our culture, in our cultural context. And the first one is this. Resist the drift. The enemy will try to take you baby steps away from God. He's not going to try to take you tomorrow uh, to be a drug dealer in South L.A. Because that's probably not like on the radar for you at all, okay? But the reality is he will try to lure you away from growing in a, in a growing connection with Jesus. He'll try to get you to drift. Nothing stays neutral. And so coasting in our relationship with Jesus is not an option. Does that make sense? That the idea of just saying, okay, well, I go to church every Sunday and I just do this and this is what it is and, and I, I've done it for 20 years. Well, are you actively investing in your relationship with Jesus? Are you actively listening? Are you actively being a part of this relationship and growing this? We will either walk toward God purposefully or we will drift from him unintentionally. It will happen. There is no neutral in this. The enemy will try to get you sideways in your followership of Jesus, get you distracted, get you over busy doing so many other things to dilute your devotion for the one that saved you, to try to get you to pursue other things beyond and above him. Jesus said, follow me. That was his discipleship model. Follow me. You know what that involves? Actively following him. Like, it's pretty simple, and yet it's pretty profound. It's not this idea of just know this list of things. It's not an idea of, okay, just go through these three classes and then you've passed, you get to check it off and you're done. It's this idea of follow me, meaning at every stage of our journey with Jesus, there is always a next step. There's always growth for us to pursue. Not to get Jesus to like us more. He can't like you anymore. He can't love you any more than he does right now. But he wants a dynamic relationship with you, not a religion about him. 
And so it is this pursuit of following after him. Proximity to Jesus will grow your relationship connection with Jesus. So stay close. Resist the drift. Our culture and the conduct of our enemy will never try to deepen your connection with Jesus. It just won't. It will try to sever it. It will try to dilute it. It will try to pull you away. And so you and I have to be active to resist that. To say, I'm not going to become overly busy. Where I, I, I get so distracted that Jesus becomes priority number 10. Versus seek me first is what Jesus said, right? And, and so it is this idea of not trying to earn. That's not what we're talking about. But this idea of remaining active in my followership of him. So I'm going to resist the drift. Isolation and distance is the name of the game for the devil. He wants to isolate you. He wants to create distance between you and Jesus and you and people that love Jesus. And if he can do that, then you don't become very much of a threat. Then you are the one who loses in the end. You miss out. And you miss out on the beauty. So resist the drift. And the second one is resist the labeler mindset. This idea of resisting... Um, how many of you are really, really organized? Okay, you raise your hand. You play along. That's awesome. Um, so you, uh, how many of you label things in your house? You have like a labeler gun. Anyone have a labeler gun? That, like you could type stuff in and like it creates a label? Raise your hand really high because you should be proud of that. That's awesome. Everybody else look around. They're better than us, okay? So if you have that, it's an amazing gift, right? It's a great thing. Um, my son goes to GCU, and uh, I'm going to tell you about move-in day at GCU as a parent is a dream. It is a dream. Why? I have to force myself to use labels, and so we label everything, but we pull up, and there's like this crowd of crazy college kids that go, hey, welcome to GCU, and they throw t-shirts at you and stuff, and then they grab all your stuff, and if it's labeled properly, it all ends up in the same room. What? Yes, it's awesome. So like this crazy thing that all your stuff goes through, you don't have to move it. You just drove up, you waited in line a long time, but you drove up, they moved it all for you, and if it's labeled right, it's there, right? We love labels in our culture. The problem is, so does the enemy. And he loves to take those labels, which could be a positive and beautiful thing, and twist them. And pretty soon, we can get caught up in the labeler mindset, can't we? And all of a sudden, we start labeling the people around us. And we all have it. Let's just be real, okay? This is not like we never do this. The caution here is to resist doing this because it's so easy to do, isn't it? to begin to label the people around us, to begin to say, but what did Paul say in Ephesians 6, 12? Our struggle is not against what? Flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and authorities and rulers of this dark age. That's where the battle is. The battle is not the people around you. We have one enemy, and it is not other people we tend to label people as the enemy, even subconsciously, don't we? Look, we all struggle with this. I'll be the first to raise my hand. 
we struggle with this. We have to resist this. Resist the urge to make the others the enemy. Replace the false conversations that you are winning in your mind with the people who are not standing in front of you. You know those conversations, right? Because you have them all the time. And you win them all. Isn't it awesome? You win all those arguments in your head. And what happens is that we begin to drift with the people we're arguing about in our mind. We begin to drift and drift toward labeling them as the enemy. What if you were to replace and resist in a way where you don't just win the argument with people, but you actually stop and say, God, I'm starting to have an argument with someone who's not even here. And I'm totally going to win. But I know that's not what you want for me. And so I'm going to pray. What did Jesus say? Pray for your enemies. What? Pray for your enemies. Following Jesus is not easy, friends. It just isn't. And anyone who says it is, is full of it. How in the world do you pray for your enemies? Sometimes reluctantly. Sometimes with a hurt heart, here's what happens. We get shamed, we get embarrassed, we get hurt, we get frustrated, we get angry. And when in those moments, we tend to win the arguments because someone's gotta be the enemy because I got hurt. I felt embarrassed, I got rejected. I've got this anger. And so I've gotta do something with this. And I think what Jesus would say is, well, pray for your enemies. How about we do that together? Now, you can have healthy boundaries with people. This isn't to say everyone has to be your BFF. They don't. You have to love everybody. You don't necessarily have to like everybody. That's what Jesus is saying. I called you to love people. That doesn't mean they have to be your best friend on the planet. But... This is about loving everyone always. That's what Jesus teaches. That's what he practices. That's what he pushes us to. We can have healthy boundaries and have relational boundaries with people that we know is maybe unhealthy and it's a little bit toxic and things just go sideways and it's okay to say, look, we're gonna have a relationship here. We don't have to have a relationship out here or in this level, but we're gonna have this relationship. I will choose to love and I will choose to pray even for those that I struggle with. See, people are not the enemy. And in the church, let's be really clear, non-Christians are not the enemy. They're also under attack of our enemy. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says this, the God of this age, the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel and the display of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. We have one enemy, and it's not other people. And when you find yourself catching yourself and labeling, then that should be the check yourself moment to say, I need to resist that. Even though I feel that and I want that, I need to resist that. I'm gonna pray for my enemies. And often what you're gonna find is God does a whole lot of changing work on you before he ever does any changing work on someone else. He'll do that also. But a lot of times, he's changing your heart. People may have a different opinion than you. People may have a different belief than you. 
People may be of a different political party than you. People may have different convictions and backgrounds and perceptions than you. You know what that makes them? Different than you. It does not make them your enemy. We have one enemy. And remember, he's a defeated one. And so we stand in the strength to say, I'm going to resist the labeler mindset. I'm going to push back on that. I want to challenge you to resist, thirdly, this, resist the extremes of self. Resist the extremes of self from one extreme of self-reliance. I, I don't need God. I can do this life on my own. I can choose my own path. I'm going to be the captain of my own soul. And the enemy will love to try to pull you and pull you to this place of self-reliance where it's all about you and you don't need anybody and you certainly don't need God. And this other extreme is this extreme of self-condemnation where I'm so broken. I'm a horrible person. I can't believe that God would forgive me after this many times. There's no way. Self-reliance, the devil will try to get you to not even recognize your own need for God, that you should be the captain of your soul, the only one in charge, have the most say and the most sway in your life, and that we should give ourselves to that fully and that full pursuit. This is a twisting of the whisper of what Satan whispered to Eve. Did God really say that? I, I don't know if that was really what God said. Maybe God's keeping something from you. Can you believe that? That God would keep something from you? Maybe you should eat that fruit. God knows it'll make you like him. He's obviously hiding something from you. That's the conversation happening in Genesis chapter 3. This deception of you can be self-reliant. God's actually trying to keep something from you. Can you believe that? And no, that's not at all God's heart. The self-reliant person says, I'm going to trust in myself only. I can't trust God. He's trying to keep something from me. And the enemy would love to push you to a posture of self-reliance and to a stance that says, listen, many people have adopted that. But in the end, it's hollow. It's void of security. It's void of the enduring hope that goes beyond your circumstantial blessing. When your circumstantial blessing goes sideways or goes south, then you've got nothing to hope in. And so in those moments, the enemy loves to get you isolated there. To the other extreme, he'll try to pull you to the self-condemnation side. This other extreme to say, look, everything is uh, not going well in life. Satan is the accuser. He attacks your heart with accusations. You're not good enough for God. You're too broken for God to use. You're not this, you'll never be that, and accusing you on and on and on. Anyone ever had, you don't have to raise your hand, but anyone had this narrative going on in their own mind? That I'm beyond God's reach of grace. I'm beyond God's reach of healing and hope. I love what Bob Goff says, quit listening to the loudest voices and start listening to the truest voice. You have a voice and a choice of which voice you listen to. 
So one of the ways that the enemy tries to work and tactics and schemes and plans is to pull us to one extreme of another, to the extreme of self-reliance or to the extreme of self-condemnation where we get stuck. Revelation chapter 12 says this, that now the time has come, salvation, the power, the kingdom of God and the authority of the Messiah, listen to this, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Speaking of the enemy, what's his job? What does he do? He's the accuser of the brothers and sisters of Christ. He accuses you all the time. And for some of you, it is the tape you have heard for decades in your own head. It's the whispers and the lies and the accusations. The Greek word translated for accuser is diablos. It's used 35 different times in the New Testament. Translated as devil or adversary or accuser. For the accuser of our brothers constantly is accusing. It's what he does. Our enemy was hurled down, but he has not stopped accusing. That's what he does. And we need to recognize that. That when those voices and when those accusations start hurling at you, that you can resist that because it's not truth. It's not truth as a follower of Jesus that you, listen, we can make mistakes, true, and we have to own it, and there's consequences to mistakes, but accusations is about self-condemnation, that there's no hope left for you, and that's not at all the truth that we see in Jesus. See, before you sin, the devil loves to give the whisper of, go ahead, do it, no big deal. Everybody else does it. You're not going to get caught. Besides, who really cares? It's your life. Be self-reliant. And as soon as you sin, then his whole voice tone changes. After you do it, you're pathetic. You're no good. God doesn't love you. God will never, ever use you again. You've gone too far. See, before you sin, he lies. And after you sin, he accuses. It's what he does. And you don't have to buy it. You don't have to settle for it. The devil knows your name but he calls you by your sin. But Jesus knows your sin and calls you by your name. He loves you. He pursued a relationship with you. If you look at Zechariah chapter three, it's an interesting chapter. I don't have time to read through it all, but I encourage you to read. Anyone ever been to a court before? A courtroom? Interesting in the courtroom, I sat on a jury one time and... uh, it's interesting, everybody all rise, and I'm not gonna make you do that, but like the judge has that cool little gavel thing. It's pretty cool, that's awesome. Uh, and the, the judge is like in charge, right? When they enter the room, everyone else stands, everyone else sits and they sit, and, and they have control over things. They're the ones ultimately in charge, but you have a couple other lawyers who are there, right? You have a defense attorney who's there, And you have a prosecuting attorney who's there who's trying to prove a case against the defendant, right? In Zechariah chapter 3, I encourage you to read it this week, there's this interesting reality of the story that Zechariah is a, a minor prophet, is given this vision of this heavenly courtroom where God is there and Satan is there. Joshua is the high priest of the time. And Satan is there actually accusing Joshua, who is the high priest in charge of the whole faith of of the group of God's people and and in charge of the sacrifices and everything goes on. And he's got these dirty garments on, which was always a symbol of sin, was always a symbol of brokenness before God and not holiness. And Joshua's got this. And so that Satan is there and he's accusing Joshua 
of all the sin and this garment that he's wearing and the dirtiness of it, and there's this interesting conversation, and the angel of the Lord is there as well. Now, it's interesting when you read that in the Old Testament, and you'll see it sometimes in the New Testament as well, but mostly in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, and it's kind of capitalized, all caps, Lord, right? And most scholars, in most of those occasions, will tie that back to a Christophany, which is just a $20 word that I learned in seminary, big deal, Christophany, which is the idea of a, a non-human form appearance of Jesus, a non-bodily appearance of Jesus, right? So the angel of the Lord is also in this courtroom in this vision that's happening. This Christophany, we've seen it before in the book of Daniel, remember? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are tossed into the fire, right? And then there's four um, people walking around and Nebuchadnezzar even says there's one looks kind of like the angel of the Lord, right? That's a Christophany. Jesus was there in that moment and helping them. The Lord said to Satan in the Zechariah passage, rebuke you, Satan. The Lord rebuke you. You, He has chosen Jerusalem. And isn't this man a burning stick that's snatched from the fire? The devil accuses. He's hurling insults. It looks like he has a case against Joshua because of the sin represented in these dirty garments. And all of a sudden, the angel of the Lord says, take those garments off and bring in new ones. I command it. And it's fascinating. In the Old Testament, hundreds of years before the crucifixion of Jesus, we begin to see this prophecy play out. And at the very end, in verse 9, it says this idea that Jesus is showing up and saying, look, I'm going to remove all the sins of the land in one single day. And we know that happened in the crucifixion of Jesus. The devil is the accuser, but here's the good news. Jesus is your advocate. He's your advocate. 1 John 2, 1 says this, My dear children, I'm writing to you that you would not sin, but in if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. I know it looks like he's got dirty garments. I know it looks like she's got dirty garments, but you know what? Check that. I paid for that. I got new garments right here. They're fine. They're with me. And that's the defense in that moment. The Son of God is our advocate who pitches our case and defends us wherever the enemy attacks. The devil will try to prove your guilt, but Jesus already dealt with your sin and has called you righteous, not because of what you do, but because of what he has done and what he does for you. No one else can do that. Only Jesus in his life, in his death, in his interaction. Uh, this idea of the resurrection of him being this idea of, of saying, hey, this is the hope we have that holds us eternally. What's interesting in Zechariah chapter three is you fast forward to this little story that Jesus tells in Luke 15 about these two sons. And one says to a father, I hate you. I want my inheritance now. And he takes off and he blows it all in wild living and then he wakes up and one day, and he says, you know what? My servants at my father's house live better than I do. I'm going to go home. And so I'm going to go home and just try to be a servant at my dad's house. And the father that Jesus is telling the story has been looking for his son. And one day, he makes his way over the horizon, and the father hikes up his, uh, not skirt, but hikes up his robe that they would have worn and runs, which a patriarch never does. You don't run as the patriarch of the family. But this father, the good father, runs. 
and he gets to the son, and it's almost like they tackle him and just loves on him. It says, my son who is lost is now home, and the son is just filthy, right? He's been living with the pigs, and what does the father say? Take off those clothes, and he actually puts the robe of the father on, puts the ring on his finger, and says, everything has changed. It's an amazing story of God's hope and his love to meet us. It's this perfect picture that says this is the way it's gonna be. This is the hope that we have. Zechariah chapter three, all the way into this idea of what we see in Luke 15, and all the way fast forward to Romans chapter eight, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And what Paul is trying to say is, look, you have a defense that's the best defense on the planet, and it's not your actions, it's not your good works, it's the hope of the one you put your trust in. It's your defense attorney, it's Jesus. And he beats this prosecutor every single time. You don't have to buy the lie. Here's the takeaway for today. Our enemy is our biggest accuser, but our savior is our greatest advocate. And we need to live with that truth, that from Zechariah chapter three to Luke 15 and the good father to Romans chapter eight, we see this pattern of God's intentional love and grace advocating on our behalf because we needed him to. And he was pleased to do so, so that we can be secure in Jesus and resist the enemy's schemes and accusations and tactics. We can push back against those. We don't have to buy them. So we can resist the drift and stay focused and being proximity, having proximity and growing our relationship with Jesus. We can resist the labeler mindset. We can resist the stance of self-reliance or the stance of self-condemnation. We don't have to live with those because our greatest advocate is the Savior who saved us. And so as we move to a time of communion and into a couple songs of worship, I just wanna invite you Whatever you've been carrying around, because let's be honest, whether it's the drift or whether it's the label or mindset or whether it's self-reliance or self-condemnation, every single one of us here finds ourselves somewhere in that. So whatever you've been carrying around, whatever you've been leaning toward, drifting away from, thinking about, whatever voices you've been kind of letting run rampant in your mind, Satan's our biggest accuser, but Jesus is our greatest advocate. And so as you take the Lord's Supper tonight, as a follower of Jesus, if if that's you, then I invite you to the table. There's a couple in the back and a couple up front. There's gluten-free crackers down here that as you take that cracker and as you take that juice, remembering it was his body broken for you, his blood shed for you, for the forgiveness of your sins so that you don't have to live under any kind of influence from the accuser who accuses you, that you can live with an internal, enduring hope that says, this is who I am. I'm not perfect, but I'm forgiven. Yeah, I'm still broken, but I'm in a process of becoming more and more who Jesus sees me to be. And I'm not alone, and I'm not without power. I have the power of God 
at, at work in my life, and I can do this, not because of me, but because of him in me. And so I can resist these things. I can resist the schemes of the enemy. And so I just want to pray for you. And then as we come out of communion into this song, I just want you to hear the words of Romans chapter 8 spoken over you and into you that it would encourage your heart to know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who have said yes to Jesus, who are following after him. And if you're here tonight and you've never done that, man, tonight's a night. What a great night to say yes to Jesus. And if you've got questions about that, come talk to myself or Brian or the friend that brought you. We'd love to talk with you about that. So, Father, that's what we would pray for, is that you'd help us to be a people who, who don't buy the accusations when they come. They will come. We don't become immune to those. But would you help us to recognize the schemes and the tactics of the enemy to try to get us sideways, to try to cause a drift and pull us from you. Ways that he tries to get us to dilute our devotion, distracted by so many other things, or to make other people the enemy. Would you help us to choose to pray? Would you raise up your church to be a church that prays and to see you at work changing people who are far from you to be in relationship with you, healing the hurts that need healed, helping overcome the obstacles that are there? Would you help us not to lean to the extremes of self-reliance or self-condemnation, but we'd stay humble and we'd stay uplifted because of the hope we have in you, Jesus. So as we remember, Jesus, your life, your death, your resurrection, as we take this bread, as we take this juice, may this be a moment where we can lay down one of those things we're struggling with, kind of leave it at the table as we take that juice tonight. As we worship you in these coming moments, would you stir our hearts afresh and anew? We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.